Amen. If Jesus ever took the Myers-Briggs personality test, he would be an INFJ. All right, is, is anyone familiar with the Myers-Briggs? Are there a few out there? The first service, like, no one knew what I was talking about, so the, the illustration just tanked. Um, but if you're familiar with the Myers-Briggs, it's uh, this introspective self-report questionnaire uh, that really aims at determining someone's personality type based on how you respond to a variety of questions. And consistently, uh, psychologists and, and just experts across the intraweb uh, suggest that Jesus is an INFJ. Now, what, what that means, I mean, for anyone that cares, uh, is it actually happens to be the rarest of all personalities according to the Myers-Briggs scale. Only 1% of the American population actually has that type of personality. Um, it's often described as visionaries oriented toward contemplation. So yeah, that, that makes sense. I could see Jesus kind of falling under that. Now, it also is a personality that's shared by uh, Mahatma Gandhi. And that kind of makes sense. But get this, interesting enough, it's also shared with Adolf Hitler and Osama bin Laden. Uh, I'm usually an ENFP, uh, a personality described as quirky uh, and verbally fluid people persons. Um, And it's a personality shared with Mark Twain, Walt Disney, Ellen DeGeneres, uh, but also Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez. All right, and, and this, what about, so ENFP is a personality uh, that uh, is JFK, Donald Trump, Malcolm X, and Al Capone, right? Otherwise known as Scarface. And the INTJs out there, uh, Isaac Newton, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Elon Musk, but also Vladimir Lenin and Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. All right, listen, I could keep going. There are 16 personality types, uh, and every type includes some of the most amazing people, right, heroic in what they accomplished for the world, and yet at the same time, coupled with some of the world's most notorious hatred and evil. We human beings, I mean, we're, we're a funny bunch, aren't we? And here's the reality, across humanity, inside every one of us, is the potential for heroic love and at the same time unimaginable evil. There's this, this inner heart struggle, right, that's, that's present in all of us. And, and if little decisions are made and, and certain things fester, and that leads to other bigger decisions that nurture particular desires that lead to actions that you would have never imagined possible. This week, we're tackling the question, why are Christians hypocrites? And notice the question isn't, are Christians hypocrites? The, the question is, why are they? The question assumes it. There's an article uh, not too long ago in the Huffington Post, and, and the title was, Exposing America's Biggest Hypocrites, Evangelical Christians. And, and the article goes on to just simply say how Christians don't practice what they preach. And it's no doubt that, that this topic is one of the, the darkest clouds that hangs over Christianity in the church. Uh, Brendan Manning, who's the author of the Ragamuffin Gospel, he said this, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds 
unbelievable. And Christopher Hitchens, who's a popular atheist, author of God is Not Great, he confirms or affirms what Manning's saying, and he says this, religious faith as evidenced by ordinary followers is the single strongest proof that there is no God. See, tragically, so many people who oppose Christianity and who are disenfranchised with the church do so against this backdrop of personal disappointment with Christians and the church. My own brother, frankly, disenfranchised with Christianity, has made the same argument as to why he disbelieves. And man, that one's pointed and very poignant for me because he and I live together, right? And so he saw firsthand very often me practicing what I wasn't preaching. But to tackle this question, why are Christians hypocrites? I want to look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. It's the tragic story of King David and Bathsheba, uh, perhaps the, the most tragic case of hypocrisy that we see throughout Scripture. So we're going to tackle this, and it's going to be a massive uh, undertaking because it's, I mean, a, a huge chunk of verses. But I want you to think about this. This uh, passage is about King David, right? He's, he's referred to by God as a man after God's own heart, Literally a man handpicked by God to be king of Israel and yet he falls into the horrible sin of adultery and murder and the horrifying abuse of power. This is the same David who demonstrated amazingly heroic love and faith in defeating Goliath, right? I mean, remember that story. As he put his life on the line when no one else would, trusting God, defending his people. And then we have this infamous incident with Bathsheba, displaying unimaginable evil. I mean, how does this happen? Well, I want to look at the story as it relates to hypocrisy. And I don't want to just answer why Christians are hypocrites. I want to look at and what we can learn about how we might be able to guard against it in our own hearts. All right? So that's what we're going to tackle today. Follow along with me as we read this lengthy passage. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, Uriah, uh, or David said to Uriah, have you not come from a, a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? 
Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next and David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because of this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus ends the reading of God's word. What, what a tragic story, right? I mean, there is, there is so much that, that we could talk about through this story, but what I want to do is I, I want to walk through this passage, and I want us to take away at least four things that we learn from this story about the nature of hypocrisy. All right, and this will kind of serve as our outline. The first thing is that no one is immune, Christians included. No one's immune to hypocrisy, Christians included. The second thing is that hypocrisy doesn't happen overnight. Third thing is that hypocrisy is fueled by a desire to be approved and praised by people. And then lastly, we identify and critique other people's sins and issues more enthusiastically than we do confronting and dealing with our own. All right, so we're going to tackle all of that. We've got some work to do, so I want to jump right in. No one is immune to hypocrisy, Christians included. All right, now before we even start tackling the text, I think it'll be helpful to understand the word hypocrite. It comes from the Greek word for an actor, right? So all Greek actors wore masks to hide their true identity and take on the role that they were playing. So a good actor was a hypocrite. But in time, that word has come to describe something a little bit different, right? A hypocrite now describes, as it's defined, a person who puts a false appearance on of virtue or religion. Or, or a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. 
And, and see, the reality is, is that hypocrisy is a humanity issue, right? No one is immune to hypocrisy, and, and that includes Christians. And the reason is because the human heart is so inclined to wrap our identity, right, our sense of worth and meaning and value around so many different things, right? Those things that if you lost it, life would hardly, worth, uh, be, would hardly be worth living. And, and we build our lives around these things, things like success at work, our children, money, power. And yet, none of those things were created to carry the weight of our ultimate identity, right? Christ alone can carry that weight and is truly the only one and only source of our soul satisfaction that will ever allow your life to have all of its fullness and joy. But see, we lose sight of that, right? As as Christians, we lose sight of that. And I think with an honest evaluation of ourselves, we can agree that that there's a great tendency in all of us to project a a false appearance of of virtue or a false appearance of a particular quality that we want to project. And, and, And contradiction in our thoughts and our actions from what we believe and feel. Right? Consciously and subconsciously, we put forward a better image of ourselves than what really exists so that we can maintain the identity that we're so desperately clinging to. Projecting confidence, strength, spiritual, emotional health, and wholeness while inwardly we're filled with with self-doubts and anxiety, and self-pity, and we're holding on to grudges and bitterness. See, the outward appearance of our character and the inner reality of our heart is not as aligned as often as we'd like to admit. Now, obviously, our passage this morning is dealing with with the horrific display of sin and hypocrisy. But, But please hear this. No one in this room is immune to what happened to David, right? No one is immune to the potential of this kind of moral collapse. I mean, right, we, we've all heard the stories of, of high-profile pastors losing ministries and families because of public moral failure. I mean, there is potential for anyone to do what David did and worse. I mean, listen, this is King David, Right, the same David who wrote so much of the Psalms, who literally wrote the worship book for the Israelites and the global church at large. Right, this is the David, that, that, the man after God's own heart, that in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, when, when Samuel went to Jesse's house to anoint David as future king, the Lord reminded Samuel, do not look on his, on his appearance or on the height of his stature. I guess he was shorter, which is it's encouraging to me. Uh, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That David. And yet we see the most tragic collapse recorded in Scripture. Now, it's not the only collapse recorded in Scripture. Far from it. In fact, if you go through the Bible, every figure in the Bible other than Jesus, and you read how they messed it up, Right? I mean, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Paul and Peter. And then you look at church history and the list continues. 
I, I, I had one commentator make this point, that hypocrisy and faithfulness are not mutually exclusive. Hypocrisy and faithfulness always go together because there's not a person who's not a hypocrite unless you're Jesus. And so the, the church then is full of hypocrites in the sense that a hospital is full of sick people. Right? As Jesus told us, those who are well need no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And, and listen, although with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all those who cry out to him in faith and belief and for the forgiveness of their sin and salvation are completely forgiven. All sins, past, present, future, forgiven, washed clean. You're brought in as a child of God, loved by him. And yet, this side of glory, this side of when Christ returns, we still fight against the, the, the tendency towards wickedness. We still fight against our flesh and these desires that, that cling to identity that are less than Jesus. So no one is immune to hypocrisy, and that includes Christians. Now this leads us to the second thing that we learn, and that's hypocrisy doesn't happen overnight. Okay, in other words, sin has a, has a progressive nature, right? You just don't get out of bed and commit adultery and kill someone. Right? It just doesn't happen overnight. It starts with hundreds and thousands of smaller decisions, seemingly unrelated decisions, smaller temptations. And as I mentioned earlier, those little decisions are made and then certain things fester and that leads to other bigger decisions that nurture particular desires that lead to actions that you would have never imagined possible. And the sins accumulate and the, and the conscience gets hardened and there's calluses that form on your soul and that even murder and adultery don't seem like that big of a deal anymore. I mean, that's what happened to David. Take, take a look at what happened to him. His, his sin and hypocrisy starts with something small. And it starts with him neglecting his duty. Uh, verse 1 tells us, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and, and his servants with him and all Israel, but David remained at Jerusalem. All right, so here we have David. Whose, whose soldiers are at war against the Ammonites. And although it's spring, and as Scripture tells us here, it was the time of year that every king of whatever nation who's at war goes out to the battle, but this king does not. David, it tells us, remained in Jerusalem. And, and who knows all the little decisions that led up to that decision to neglect his duty as king, but David is not where he should be. Scripture's making that clear. He's not doing what he should be doing. He's neglecting his duty. And then that leads to further poor decisions. Verse 2, David, late one afternoon, on his couch, right? He's, taking, he's waking up from an afternoon nap. Not that afternoon naps are bad, but I mean, he was neglecting his duty. I'll probably take one later today, but he's neglecting his duty. He, he should be out at war with all of his uh, fellow warriors and, and, and his people defending his country. And he's taking an afternoon nap, leisurely taking a stroll. And he, and he wakes up, gets off the couch, and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath on, on the roof. And, and, and baths, that's where baths were situated in those days. And, and see, here's the, the thing is that the problem wasn't that he saw Bathsheba. The problem was that he then took a second look. 
And then he pondered it. And then he began thinking and and pursuing it with questions. Oh, who, who who is this? Who is this? He knows who it is. It's Uriah's wife, one of his mighty men, one of his best friends, one of his most trusted, loyal warriors. He knows who it is, but he's flirting with danger. He's he's flirting with thoughts. And he finds out it's it's the daughter of Eliam, one of of David's mighty men, and that she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who's also one of David's mighty men. And the mighty men were a group of 30 or so soldiers who were fiercely loyal to David. Right, who, who put their own lives on the line repeatedly in order to protect David, to honor him as their king and as their brother and as their friend. And yet David, in this moment, thinks nothing about exploiting his friend's daughter. Nothing about exploiting his friend's wife. And he goes on down this road of unthinkable decisions that just get worse and worse. And this abuse of power that is disturbing. Verse 4 tells us that he sent for her and he took her. As one commentator observed, those are acts of aggression. Those are acts of force. Those are acts seemingly against the will. This is not a consensual thing. Now, obviously, we don't know exactly how this whole thing went down, but what we do know is this, that when a king said, do this or don't do that, you either did this or you died. So however you slice it, this is a hashtag me too moment, however you break it down, and it's King David. But you see how his heart has been, has been calloused. From, from incremental smaller decisions, seemingly unrelated decisions to sin, to neglect his duty, to indulge in just a little bit of lust, to, uh, to abuse just a, a little bit of power and build it up and build it up. And now adultery, which leads to murder, no big deal. See, sin has a progressive nature. Hypocrisy like this does not happen overnight. And listen, if it can happen to the man who gave us the Psalms, Do we really think for even a second that it couldn't happen to one of us? Hear this, church. We must do everything we can to guard our hearts against this. As one Puritan, John Owen, said, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So a little glance, kill it. Right? Uh, Just holding a, a little grudge or bitterness, kill it. But yet we think, oh, it's just a glance, it's just a, it's a grudge, it's harmless, right? Listen, a glance and a grudge, as I've heard it described, are gateway sins of the heart. And I think that's why Jesus was so serious on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, look, if, you, if you're lusting for someone in your own heart, you're an adulterer. If you're, if you're hateful towards someone in your own heart, you're a murderer, See, Jesus wants something far deeper than an outward veneer of righteousness. He wants our hearts. Listen to this quote by uh, Pastor Scott Sauls. That part of us that think it's harmless to flirt with lust or gossip or greed or selfish ambition or anger, as long as we don't get into bed with it, that part of us that thinks it's harmless 
we're fooling ourselves. And it's, and it's because of that that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let the one who thinks he stands take heed unless he fall. Listen, we have to be aware of the, the vulnerability that, that we are because, listen, the people that are most vulnerable are the ones who think they're not vulnerable. So let's do everything we can to be killing sin so that it's not killing us. And that we don't fall into this foolish moral collapse that we see King David fall into. Because that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So let's guard our hearts. And that moves us to the third observation that we make about hypocrisy. And that's hypocrisy is fueled by a desire to be approved and praised by people. David uh, gets word from Bathsheba that she's pregnant. Right? And, and then what was done in secret is now going to be a very public display, whether he likes it or not. And he knows it, so he thinks quickly. He says, okay, so in, in fear of being exposed and, and bringing shame and disapproval to his beloved name and reputation and kingdom, he starts down this trail to cover up his tracks, right? Trying to create plausible doubt or, or plausible deniability. Say, bring Uriah in. He'll, he'll, he'll sleep with his wife and maybe this kid is actually his and not mine and I'm, I'm, I'm good. My reputation is still intact. I won't be found out. I won't be exposed. So he calls his faithful friend, his mighty warrior, Uriah, home. And, and, and he exchanges this small talk, right? He's, oh, Uriah, you're, you're doing great, great job out there on the battlefield. You guys are so loyal. You guys are so courageous. Man, I want to I reward you by, by giving you this night with your wife. But Uriah sleeps at the door of David's house, verse 9 tells us. Right? So David calls the soldier back the next day, and he says, man, listen, take a drink. Take another drink until he gets Uriah drunk. And he says, okay, now, be with, now go be with your wife. But Uriah, fiercely loyal, says, no, listen, my brothers, my brothers are out at war. I can't do that. I can't do that. Imagine in that moment... If you're King David, who stayed at home while all the other kings are at battle, and your faithful, loyal soldier says, there's no way I can go sleep in my own house when you just slept with his wife. I heard one commentator say, Uriah is a better man drunk in this moment than David is sober. But David, so calloused, doesn't even bat an eye. And the next morning, he sends Joab a note delivered by the hands of Uriah to have him killed. Unimaginable, right? Unspeakable evil. And and, and poor Bathsheba, when when she finds out uh, her beloved husband was killed in battle in verse 17, she mourned for her husband. She was devastated. I mean, you can hear the pain in this verse, and it was because David wanted to save face. He wanted to maintain that outward appearance and approval from his people. Here's the point that I want to drive home in, in this portion of what we learn from hypocrisy. When what others think you are matters more to you than who God knows you to be, hypocrisy is knocking at the door of your heart. When 
what others think you are matters more to you than who God knows you to be, hypocrisy is knocking at the door of your heart. No matter the age, no matter the occupation, no matter the relationship, each one of us can so easily fall into this. And the reason simply is because we desperately want approval. We desperately want validation. We want to impress. We want to be respected. We want to be feared, whatever it is, whether it's at work or in your marriage or in a relationship at school, at church. We want to appear that we have it all together. And there's a callousness that builds on our heart. I read an interview with David Letterman, um, who was the host of The Late Show with David Letterman. He retired back in 2015. Uh, He explained the motivation uh, and driving force behind him doing the show and really what motivated him. And I think it accurately describes how so many of us try to live our life and particularly how we try to do church. Here's what he says. Every night, you're trying to prove your self-worth. It's like meeting your girlfriend's family for the first time. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best-smelling version of yourself. If I can make people enjoy the experience and have a higher regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like an entire person. If I've come short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours because I'm not playing a character. I'm trying to give you the best version of myself. I think that's what Winston uh, was, was uh, communicating earlier today. Listen, we live our Christian life, our church life, always just trying to give people the best version of yourself. Now listen, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that it's wrong to try and give your best and do your best in everything. You absolutely should. But the question is, are you more concerned about the outward appearance of who others think you are or who God knows you to be? Listen, God knows the deepest fibers of your heart. There's nothing that you're hiding from Him. Yet we wear a mask. We do this weird thing, and at least I do this weird thing, that, that I think that somehow God doesn't see or know all that I am. Right, that he doesn't know all that we are. And, and if he somehow could, or if he knew that, that you were going to be this way, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. But listen, God knows everything about you. He's not surprised by any of it. He knows every intention. He knows that you are going to be messy. He knows that you're going to mess up often and that you're going to be drawn to things that are wicked. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. See, the whole point of the cross is that we are going to fail, that that we're going to stumble, that we're going to feel broken, and that we're going to fall short. The whole point of the cross, though, is that there be this mighty picture of his love and pursuit of you despite you. We are children of God, loved by him, and he knows everything that we are, and he loves us. And he pursues us. And he brings us to himself. He knows every fiber of our heart. And with arms spread wide, he's pursuing you, saying, I love you. I desire freedom for you and peace for you and life in all its fullness for you. Just give me your hearts. Listen, let's not go through life wearing a mask. Rather, let's authentically pursue Jesus side by side with one another. Church, imagine if we become that that pack of people 
that live life in that way, shining brightly for the world to see. And that moves us to the last thing that we'll quickly observe uh, about hypocrisy, and that's we identify and, and we critique other people's sins and issues more enthusiastically, much more enthusiastically than we do in, in confronting and dealing with our own. We see this at the end of chapter 11 and beginning of chapter 12. Verse 27 of chapter 11 literally says this, the matter that David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then chapter 12, verse 1, so the Lord, get this, sent Nathan to confront David with the truth. And this is so important, right? Because throughout this whole passage, we see that David sent. David sent for Bathsheba. David sent for Uriah. David sent to Joab. And when David is at his absolute worst, the Lord sent to David, pursues David to bring him back. And Nathan astutely tells the story of a rich man who had everything. And he took advantage of a poor man stealing and taking from him this little lamb, all that the poor man had to his name. And David, after hearing the story, was infuriated, utterly appalled. And he condemns the man saying, he deserves death for such heinous behavior. And then verse 7, emphatically, David, you are that man. Imagine if we spent more energy confronting and dealing with our own sin and brokenness than the energy we spend critiquing others and usually behind their backs. I think it's the principle that Jesus reiterates in Matthew chapter 7. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So Jesus is not saying it's wrong to lovingly help our brother remove a harmful speck from their eye. We need that. We need people speaking into our lives because we're so often blind from what's going on. Nathan spoke into David's life here. But what Jesus wants to communicate is that it's wrong to self-righteously point out a speck in our brother's eye when you're ignoring the ridiculous plank that's protruding protruding from your own. Right? We, so, we so quickly take tweezers to someone else's eyes, but we're not nearly as enthusiastic to do the hard work of confronting and dealing with our own plank. You see, the reality is we'd have to put away the tweezers and we'd have to learn how to drive a forklift. Right? Because forklifts, they move planks. Tweezers, specs. Get it? There's a joke. It's the end of the sermon. Uh, Nathan speaks into David's life. Right, and just calls them out. And and what's beautiful and what our response must be is just a few verses down in 2 Samuel chapter 12, you see David with no defensiveness, with no blame shifting, with the first words of his mouth, out of his mouth, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And with perhaps the most complete portrait of repentance that we have, He cries out to the Lord, and and it's what we read in Psalm 51, the most beautiful portrait of repentance. And see, that must be our response, to confess quickly, to repent boldly, humbly before the Lord. And my hope and prayer is, is that during this season of Lent, 
that it would be truly a season that as a church, we do the hard work of self-examination, right, of of self-reflection with much energy and effort confronting and dealing with our own hearts, humbly laying at the feet of our Savior the hurts and the pains and those deviances that are following you around that you just can't shake and confessing and repenting authentically running hard after Jesus, that we might give him our hearts and that by his grace, we might guard against these tendencies of hypocrisy, that we might shine brightly, authentically with his love for the world to see. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are thankful for your word, for these lessons that you give us in your word so that, that we might learn from them, that we might gain some, some wisdom and not, not act like fools. Lord, but we are prone to wander. Lord, we need your mercy. And according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions. Wash us thoroughly from our iniquity. Cleanse us from our sin. Lord, thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the promise that all who believe and call out to you in faith will be saved and are forgiven. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that does not yet know you as their Lord, as their Savior, Lord, that you might open their eyes, open their ears to respond in faith to the beauty and wonder of your gospel. And Lord, I pray that you might strengthen your people, that you might give hearts that are just completely exposed to you so that you might do that work in us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.